you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Okay, well, um, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning in the third chapter, so if you want to go ahead and open up there, we're going to be in the infamous, the infamous John 3.16, all the way down to John 3.21. So John 3.16 through 21. And um, as you guys are turning there, I do want to draw some attention to uh, some facility things. This is a plan that I've been wanting to do the last few weeks, but haven't been able to. But you guys don't get to see the day in and day out of what's happening here and what's not happening here and so forth. You know, you'll come in, you're like, hey, Niagara Falls is happening in the building. What's going on? And so um, since we have received this building, we have uh, initially we started renovating the office area. So if you haven't noticed, and I'm sure you already have, but I mean, we have this one way window now here. Uh, and behind it is the lounge area, and then we have the conference room, and then our offices. So all that area has been, uh, for the most part, completed. We've been cleaning out and everything. And so I just want to thank you guys for all of that. And I just want to let you know, so we have been having roof work done. So uh, Seamless Roofing Company has been working on the roof over there on that building, which is why last week, <laughs> when it rained so horribly bad, they had literally that day or the day before just finished taking off the roof and then it poured down raining and then it drenched all three floors in the educational building. So we've had conversations. We've been talking with, you know, insurance. We've been talking with the company, like, how do we get this fixed? So on and so forth. So that's something we've been working on and they are hoping to wrap that up sometime soon. Um, and then I do want to draw your attention. My wife, Chanel, is on the facility team. She's in charge of recruiting you to come do work for us. Um, and so if you haven't seen that on Church Center, on May 1st, we're going to have a work day from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. So I'm going to ask you right now, like literally right now on your phone, open your Church Center app. I know you all are just staring at me like, I hope you didn't see that I'm not getting my phone out, but I can see you. I'm just not calling you out by name. Get on there. Put it in there saying, yeah, I'll be there. Put it in your calendar. I can work. Because what we're doing in order to cut costs, to keep continuing work, uh, renovating this place, we need our people to keep coming and helping do work so we don't have to outsource it. So May 1st, from 10 to 1, um, please let Chanel know you're coming. Please put in your calendar that you'll be here. And one last piece of information I want to tell you after you're putting that in your calendar. You may have noticed this white van that is sitting out in the parking lot over here. Looks like it's a little roughed up with the paint job. Well, that is now our van. So yes, Second Baptist Church emailed me a few weeks ago saying, hey, you want a church van for free? I was like, dibs. <laughs> so Second Baptist Church, just out of their generosity, has donated to us a church van. Literally, the only thing wrong with it is that it has some paint chipping off of it. Other than that, it's in great shape, has less than 100,000 miles. The interior doesn't smell like youth group, which is great. And so now we have a vehicle that we can, we're working on getting insurance and all that stuff for it. So once we become legal with it, we'll be able to put it to use right away. 
So that is something that we can praise God and thank God for. If you know people at Second Baptist, they probably have no idea this happened, but just tell them thank you. Anyways, I've been reaching out to leadership, telling them thank you. So God is at work. I mean, it's crazy, right? Crazy cool how God is working. All right, that's enough of that. John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. If you were living here in Springfield in 2014, you remember a horrific event that took place in our city. You remember perhaps Haley Owens, young girl being kidnapped, and eventually her life taken by former, you know, Springfield Public Schools employee Craig Woods. And this was a hard time. I remember we, we were just a year living on the north side of town, you know, a couple blocks away from Commercial Street, and there was a big showing on Commercial Street for Haley Owens, and my family uh, and I were among that, that group of people. There's probably 10,000 plus people just lining on Commercial Street, just grieving for what has happened. But if you followed that story at all, I mean, up to this point, Craig <clears throat> is... Um, due to undergo the death penalty by lethal injection, and he's working through the appeal process. And even despite um, the, the mother of Haley Owens saying that she doesn't want him to have the death penalty, the court has essentially overrided that and is pushing forward in it. But in the development of that story, there was something really fascinating that caught my eye. There was an interview that KY3 did with Craig's father, Jim. Jim Woods. Jim, it seems like he's a believer, a follower of Jesus. He recognizes and doesn't denounce at all what Craig has done. And he finds it completely awful. I mean, he's grieving the fact that this has happened to a little girl in our community. But despite the horror of the event, Jim remains faithful to minister to his son, even extending forgiveness to him, hopefully leading him towards reconciliation, his own words. He wants Craig to be reconciled. And so not only that, Jim has gone alongside Haley's family to help uh, Haley's law get passed, which it did, I believe, a couple years ago, which helps expedite the the process of which the Amber Alerts are, are passed out and police respond. So here we have, in a world where everyone is heartbroken, over the evil that has been committed, no matter who it is, everybody's looking at this going, this is horrific. His father, Jim, stands in opposition to the culture, essentially a friend of sinner, or even more yet, a father of a sinner. <laughs> and he stands there. And honestly, all of us, if we, if we take a good, honest, theological evaluation of our own souls, our own spirits, All of us are Craig's. All of us are deplorable in nature, without hope in the world. All of us are murderers. All of us are evil. We are deserving of whatever punishment comes our way, and we should never have an ounce of grace or mercy. Not one ounce of it. So then where does this love come? How does Jim just conjure this up in his own way, right? Like, this doesn't seem natural. How could someone as a created being like Jim ever learn 
to love his son in such a way? And I think the answer is given to us from Scripture. It comes from God. It is something that God is, right? Pastor Nathan taught us several weeks ago from 1 John 4 that God is love. Pastor Nathan said in that sermon that love is fundamental to God's character. God determines what love is. Love does not determine what who God is. So everything about love is derivative of God. God is love. So that means when he created the world, when he created male and he created female, and he eventually created Jim and so forth, he made us all and even him in his image, in his likeness, which was an act bore out from a posture of love, which means in some unique way, and in, in the DNA of us all, we have this kind of scandalous way of loving. Jim doesn't teach himself how to love. Let's just assume he's a Christian. God taught him how to love. God made him this way. And so what we're going to see in this passage today is really, I may be oversimplifying this, but love in a couple different ways. A couple different ways. One is, I'm just going to call it a general love. A general love of God. That being God has a love that pours out onto both the righteous and the unrighteous. Right? The rain falling on the righteous and the unrighteous. I take you to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 and 9. It says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The imagery here in Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about those people who were among the church, around the church, when the Spirit of God was doing miraculous things, unique things. And yet even there were some among the church who didn't drink in the rain of God, if you will. So the rain fell, God's, God's work, the gospel came upon the whole church, and only some of them absorbed it and produced good fruit, which led to salvation, and others reject it, or produced bad fruit, if you will. So what you see here is this general love that comes out onto humanity from God. But then we have this second love, which I'll call specific love, or it could be salvific love, covenantal. But this specific love is a love that God gives to sinners by giving them a new heart to be born again, and to keep them for eternity. That is salvific love. That is a different love. You see this highlighted in Ephesians 2, 4-6, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. This is the love of God that is given to those who are saved, who are born again. They receive eternal life. 
So knowing this about the love of God makes us then slow down, gain a richer, perhaps a deeper understanding of what God is up to in loving sinners. I say that because this is the notorious J3.16, John 3.16. Like this is everybody's life verse. If you were a minister in the 90s, especially, this was your go-to passage. But what has happened in church life, in church culture, is that it has been so quickly read over and so quickly taken out of context. And by that I mean, when we talk about John 3.16, we talk about it usually in terms of John 3.16, but we don't really consider verse 1 through 15 or 17 and beyond. We usually just take it in isolation. And we often think of God being this father He's kind of like this really nice, chill grandpa on a rocking chair, just handing out worthers. Like, I love you, and I love you, and I love you, right? And that, not that that's necessarily bad, but that's not right. That's not what's going on here. There's a much deeper, richer meaning to the love of God in this story. And we have to understand that love has different contexts and different meanings, Right? I love Taco Bell. You can judge me all you want. I love the quesalupas. I'll eat them every day if I could. If I had the bank account, I'd make it happen. If I had the the wherewithal in my guts to hold Taco Bell every day, I would do it. But I would not say in the same vein that I love my wife like I love a quesalupa. (laughs) Dear God, I hope not. But love has different meaning and context and purpose based on what's going on. And so I hope to kind of challenge the cultural understanding of John 3.16 to maybe take a step further. And I'm not saying everybody has done this wrong, but I'm just saying in the circles of my influence, John 3.16 kind of became this verse that was, I don't even want to go there. And it's God's word. That's just the kind of feeling it gave off. So today we're going to see the love of God expressed beautifully. And really, in this state of progression of the sinner, going from blind, unregenerate sinner and turning them into somebody who is alive and looks like Jesus. And so you may hear me from time to time using the word scandalous or scandalously. In the Oxford Dictionary, it defines scandalous as this. Causing general public outrage by a perceived offense against morality or law. When God's love intersects with a broken and sinful world, it causes outrage and offense. Can we all agree upon that? Human law is not perfect. Human morality is not perfect. And so when God's law and God's morality comes in and intersects with broken human law, it causes outrage and it causes people to be offended. Because I assure you, there are people who look at Jim loving his son Craig and are offended. They're outraged that he would love such a horrible human being. But God's love is scandalous. But maybe that's an easy picture for you to see. Like maybe, okay, I can see how Jim loves his son and I can get on board with that. But what about something a little bit more weighty and a little bit more raw, a little bit more recent? What about loving Derek Chauvin, the police officer who was just convicted 
and sentenced to prison for murder, the murder of George Floyd. What about your love there? What if Derek came to saving faith in Jesus while in prison? What then? Would you love him then? Would you accept him as a brother or sister, right? He's not a sister. Would you accept him as a brother in the faith? And understand, if you would, the world would be against you. You know that, right? They would be offended. They would be angered towards you. How can you be so complicit with such a murderer? But again, this is the scandalous nature of the gospel. God doesn't measure his love on human terms and understanding, but based on himself. And that is offensive to a lost and dying world. And so God's love is very costly. It's costly. And that's what I want you to see in this verse as well in John 3.16. It's not just a simple Werther's love. It is a costly love. So wherever you land this morning... With your love of others, I hope this can be an encouragement from God not to worry about the world's opinions or what others think of you or if you're going to offend somebody, but that you stand confidently in with full integrity and holiness and honor in the love of God. And so I titled this the scandalous love of God. And so this is the scandal of the father's love. We'll see in three different breakings in this passage in verse 16 that he remo- he moves towards sinners in the person of Christ. Verse 16, that he moves towards sinners in the person of Christ. And then in 17 and 18, that he removes condemnation from sinners who believe in Jesus. He removes condemnation from sinners who believe in Jesus. And last, in verses 19 through 21, he changes sinners to look like Jesus. He changes sinners to look like Jesus. So let me read John three sixteen through 21 for you in its entirety here. <clears throat> Follow along with me, please. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so the love of God moves towards sinners in the person of Jesus. 16. I love this. For God. Jesus, I'm going to assume he's still talking to Nicodemus here. Remember, Nicodemus approaches him at night, night being more metaphorical of um, Nicodemus's heart being darkened, not alive. He's not born again. He's not 
actually seeing or entering into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is starting to reveal these things. And so he goes into, shortly after telling the story of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent before ancient Israel to where they would, be, they would look at it and be healed. So in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And we concluded and understood that means he would be lifted up on the cross. And that by looking at Jesus, we would find eternal healing for our souls. And so, assuming Jesus, still speaking to Nicodemus, says, For God, this same God who spoke to Moses or directed Moses to lift up the bronze serpent is the same God who will lift up Jesus, the Son of Man, and lift him up for sinners. And if we recall that story of Moses and Israel, Israel, again, was grumbling and complaining, grieving God. So God sent vipers out to bite them, right? It's not poison, it's venom, is what I was told last week, right? And uh, struck them with venom, and some died, some didn't. But in order to live again, God created a means for them to live and had Moses fashion a bronze serpent. But it was not Moses who provided the healing. Moses was not the great healer in that story. Moses just became an instrument through which God would work to heal his people. The healing, ultimately, that Israel was given was temporary. It was not eternal. It would not heal the heart or make uh, sinners born again. This was just a, a small taste of what God could do. A small taste of what could be done through a prophet who would be greater than Moses. The act of God in that story is love. So this God, this God so loved the world, John says. This love again, it is here a general love, a general love of God. This love is scandalous. God's love of the world, it is not reactive to sin. It's not as though God was in the heavens and he's going, oh, wait, what's going on here? Whoa, I got to do something about this, man. What should I do? Okay, I guess I'll send my son. No, it's not reacting to sinners. But because God is love, love is as eternal as God is. God made a plan from eternity past. We know from scripture that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God is not reactive. God has been preparing from eternity past To come and to save sinners. His love has been in motion even before creation. For God so loved the world. And we see this even in the Old Testament. Even in the Old Testament, if you were to go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8, God loved Israel. There was nothing Israel did that earned them God's love. God just loved them. They were his people. And so he made covenant with them. Even these are the same people who would turn and sin against him. And yet God would constantly be there. This is the sort of um, uh, love that we're talking about. This resilient love. And so this same love we see with Jesus. God is moving towards sinners. He's planning from eternity past to engage sinners. And not because God is reacting to an event that has happened, but because this is the perfect plan from all eternity. And it says, for God so loved the world. 
This, this use of world is not used in the sense of a populated planet with a bunch of different uh, cultures and ethnicities and languages, though that has some meaning to it. But it is more in the terms of a sinfully populated planet. If we take how John uses the word world throughout his gospel, we see very clearly this is the general meaning and consensus of what's going on. If we also take it in context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, the sinful Israelites before Moses are the same people that God deems the world here. John chapter 1, verse 10, Jesus came into the world and the world did not know Him. The world are those who reject God. And who are those who reject God? All of humanity for all time. All sinners. So here's the picture. God loves this broken, sinful, fallen world. Right? He doesn't love anybody that's easy to love. He doesn't take the easy road out. He finds somebody who's living on the other side of the track, and he goes across the tracks, and he pursues them. This is the love of God. And who makes up the world? Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave, master, so on and so forth. So the kingdom of God that Nicodemus was understanding as an Israelite, as a Jew, has now been expanded to much more than he ever thought or knew. This gospel, this kingdom, is coming to the entire world. And what did God do? He brought down the thunder, right? Just... Right? He sent Jesus, for God so loved the world that He sent Jesus just to bring the hammer, just pound everyone down. No. He gave His only Son. He gave Him up. D.A. Carson says this, that the language here emphasizes the intensity of the love. Stressing the greatness of the gift. The Father gave His best, His unique and beloved Son. The Father has a deep, intense love for his people. And so therefore, he sends the best gift he could possibly send. He didn't send some afterthought. He didn't send second string or third string, right? He put in first string. He put in the only one who could match his love because after all, God is love and Jesus is God. So here comes love manifested among sinners. And his name is Jesus. And so this is the greatest expression of God showing his love that he would give his very best. Jesus is the full radiance, the full glory of God. This perfect son. They never had any sort of issue in eternity. The father and the son never had problems. They were in perfect harmony, perfect unity. They didn't even need people. But out of love they created. And out of love they sought to redeem and reconcile. And so you have to understand, this is a costly love. The Father is giving up His Son. Right? And to to speak in human terms, the Father is risking His name, risking His reputation, risking His glory, Risking his own son for the sake of sinners. And I understand. 
Jesus is perfect. God is perfect. So there is no real risk here. But I think you get what I'm getting at here. That the Father is laying it all out on the line. I'd say in some ways, it's costly like a father loving a convicted criminal on death row. For this purpose, God sends his son. That whoever believes in him. This belief is something we talked about in verse 15. It's a, it's a belief in faith. Believing in the son of man. Believing that Jesus is the son of God. That he comes to die for sinners. That he will rise from the dead. That he will be exalted. That he will pour out his spirit. That by believing in him. What does he say? Those who believe in him should not perish. Should not perish. And so we begin to see the general shift of love. There's this general outpouring upon the world. Jesus comes clearly seen by everybody through all time. But now you begin to see the more specific love and how it works itself out. We'll see a distinction between those who perish and those who receive eternal life. And so those who do not believe in Jesus, or those who do believe in Jesus, excuse me, will not perish. Perish meaning to be condemned to eternal death or hell. There are those who will not believe, and there are those who will believe. But those who do believe will have eternal life, he says. And this is really, remember, this is the main thesis of the Apostle John's book. To have life in his name. I mean, in some ways, you could imagine the evangelist John writing this and just getting super excited that already within the first three chapters, he just gets to call sinners to believe in Jesus' name. And this will be the theme throughout. And so look, this passage is not detailing some doctrine of, of, of Arminianism or Calvinism, that, that meaning more Reformed theology. This passage speaks... Nothing of those matters, but only highlights these realities. That every person on the planet is evil, they are God-hating, they are a sinner, and yet God shows His love toward the world. Secondly, that Jesus is the living, intense love and great gift of God to sinners. And third, that those who believe in Jesus are covered in the love of God and will have eternal life. And lastly, that those who reject Jesus are not covered in the love of God and will perish for eternity. It's very simple. It's very plain. It's very straightforward. So church, God has moved towards you and me. God made the first move. It wasn't as though it was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to initiate this relationship. That's never happened. God has initiated it. And even more, while we were still sinning, God died for us. So for those of us who are in Christ, what does that mean? Well, it means we should be looking like our God in terms of love. So do you move toward sinners? I mean, your father moved towards you through Christ, right? But do you move towards sinners? Or do you run away from them? Kind of stiff arm them? And what are you willing to give in order to show the world the love of God? 
I mean, there's a lost and dying world all around us. Does it even break your heart that people will die and go to hell? Does that even bother you in the slightest? One of the greatest fruits of being born again is that we become like our Father. That we want to engage the world with the love of God. Not that we become one with the world, but we're in the world, but not of it. Look, it's real easy to grow angry, to be frustrated towards the sinfulness of the world around you. But you have to remember, God is not going to let evil go unpunished. It will either be satisfied in Jesus on the cross, or the sinner themselves will have to pay for their own sins for all eternity. And so what I'm getting at is, I'm not saying you don't do anything, or you just sit on your hands, or you're lazy as a believer, but what I'm getting at is, you don't have to be so worked up. You don't have to let your blood boil. I have allowed my blood to boil so much and so often. But what we need to do is trust in the Lord, and to move forward and engage the world in love. Like God, when He moved towards us, when He sent His Son, He didn't do it recklessly. He wasn't just all hot and bothered as He engaged sinners. It wasn't like, you know, I'm going to go down there and just prove a point. No, He moved towards us in pure, holy love in order to win us back over. And we ought to do the same. And it's costly. It's a costly love, which means people won't like you because you like people that they don't like. Or you love people that others don't like. Or you're willing to go into areas um, or be in certain circles of influence knowing that it may cost you your reputation or what people think about you. And as you begin to think about that and you're going, man, that does kind of make me nervous to think that people would think of me that way. Just remember that the Father has given way more. He gave His only Son. And as a result, people for generations have been spewing hatred towards Him. Cursing Him up and down. But He's not frazzled by it. He's not worried by it. He's in control. But that's the lost. But what about those who are in Christ? Those who inherit eternal life? Do you move towards those who are your brothers and sisters in the faith? And if so, what are you willing to give in order to, love, to show them the love of God? Right? Sometimes, me being more evangelistic, be, being more outreach, can tend to want to hang out with lost people more than believers. But God shows us that we have both an outreach and an inreach. In the Bible, we need to be engaging lost people, but we also need to be engaging the lost people who are no longer lost, but saved (laughs) and growing as a family of God. And what I'm noticing and I know we are all seeing and we were actually about this before service. I I caught this in a prayer is that while 2020 was really this hotbed of everything, 2021 has turned into more and more of a frustration and a hatred and a tension between believers. I would say now more than I even saw in 2020. Like it is really beginning to build up even more. Even more than so tensions with non-believers. Like the church is really undergoing some fire among one another. So one thing I want to do, and I'm not going to get into specifics or examples of this, but I want to give a general um, 
just tool here, that I want everyone to consider operating under the philosophy of engaging people, starting from the position of what it is you do have in common in Christ. So when you're talking about your brothers and sisters in the faith, where we should start are on the essentials of our salvation. Do we believe in Jesus? Do we believe that he rose from the dead? Do we believe that we'll be with him forever? Right? Those essentials and then work out from there. Because what's happening is the enemy is just constantly having us jump onto issues that we disagree upon and then just getting deeper and deeper entrenched in our hatred towards one another and never coming to the grounds of which we agree. So the church is continually dividing. Continually dividing. So I want to challenge you to engage your brothers and sisters rightly. Look, over time, heretics will be found out. False teaching will be found out. False doctrine will be found out. But let's start from where we do know we have common ground and then work out from there. So why do I say all this? Because the church is the light of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Right When God called us to Himself, we weren't looking at the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit going, man, I don't know if I want to go and be a part of that because they don't seem to really like each other. What none of us have ever said. But when we consider how we're engaging a lost and dying world with the love of God, one of the first things they're going to do is go, okay, I can't wait to be a part of the church. Well, what are you calling them to? Are you calling them to more division? Or are you calling them to unity grounded in the love of Christ? And we see in the book of Acts that when the church comes together and is unified strongly in the things of Christ, it brings about all among the community. My hope is that within the West Central neighborhood here, that when people look at us or they interact with us, they are put in awe because of the love of God operating in us and through us towards them and towards one another. That's what I hope. And so, in this room, are we dealing with a church that is strongly united or strongly divided? Are we moving towards the love of God or are we running away from it? So that God would move towards sinners is a wonder and ultimately worthy of praise. And I would say equally, when believers move towards one another in that same love, it causes everyone to be filled with awe. But there is a fear. There's a fear that when something so holy and so pure tends to move towards sinners, it would only make sinners be more full of shame or guilt or condemnation. And yet that's true. Like when you come face to face with holiness, you begin to realize how dirty you are, right? Seth was kind of speaking about that from the stage earlier. But in this case, God is moving towards sinners, not so that they would be condemned, but so that he would remove from them condemnation. Verse 17 through 18 The love of God removes condemnation from sinners who believe in Jesus. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send His Son. I love this beginning of uh, verse 17. There's this unique relationship between the Father and the Son. 
And this small statement just gives us a small glimpse or a snapshot. It is the Father who is sending the Son. So it's not the Father who's doing the work in the, in the sense of dying on the cross, but it is the Son. There's distinction in the Godhead here. And it is Jesus who willingly comes down in obedience to the Father to die on behalf of sinners. And so what we have is this distinct yet complementary relationship between the Father, the Son, and ultimately the Holy Spirit, though He's not named right here. But it will be the Spirit that works to empower and encourage and comfort Jesus in His ministry But then once Jesus resurrects from the grave, it'll be the Spirit that is poured out onto sinners, regenerating their hearts, making them come alive, be born again, and walk into the light. And so what you have here is this divine agreement. This divine agreement. This divine plan that none of us ever got to sit in on. God never consulted us on, hey, what do you think about this plan of salvation? No, this was a perfectly perfectly constructed plan of salvation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, knowing their roles distinctively and what it is they would do. And so I appreciate that setup. Because in order to understand what God is doing, sometimes it's, understand, it's best to understand what God is not doing. For God did not send His Son, is what it says. And so after... After all, Nicodemus has heard from Jesus, especially that he is not born again. It could be easily understood that Nicodemus would have to have this, like this talking to. Like Jesus coming down, you're not of the kingdom of God, you're not born again, I am the son of man, I am the son of God, and so let me tell you what's wrong with you, Nicodemus. Right? It's possible that Nicodemus could be thinking that. But God is saying, no, no, no. I didn't send my son in the world to condemn the world. That's not the purpose. And understand, Jesus has the authority to do so. He's the son of man. The pro, one, of the, one of the job descriptions of the son of man is to judge. But that's it. He comes to judge, but he's not coming to condemn. But what is he doing? But in order that the world might be saved through him. So here comes this God, this holy, perfect God, judge, and he's coming down and he's face to face with with sinners and he has the opportunity, if he wants to, to just let them have it, saying, you've sinned this way, you've done this, you've done that. But instead he's saying, I'm not coming to condemn, but to save. And understand, what we're not seeing here is that the whole world will be saved through him, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is not some universalist saying, I'm going to do this work, and no matter what anybody does for all time, I'm just going to save them all anyways. That's not what he's saying here at all. But he comes into the world, pours out this general love, and those who believe in him, they might have eternal life, right? And he says that they would be saved through him. It's a unique shift in language. We haven't seen the word saved here in this point. We've been talking about being born again, but now being saved. This is a divine salvation, a divine rescue. And what is this? What do we need to consider when we're thinking about being saved? What is it we're being saved from? And what is it we're being saved to? Because obviously Nicodemus is not 
worried about Rome coming in and conquering right now. Like There's no great enemies pressing around him in that sort of way. But Jesus is talking about a salvation of the soul. The Egypt, in a lot of ways, represents the enslavement of our hearts. And we're constantly enslaved to idols, to fears, to shame, to guilt, and we give in to those. And we end up producing more and more sinful actions and thoughts. So Jesus comes to rescue us from our own sin. But not only that, he takes us somewhere. He's saving us to God, to righteousness, to eternal life. And that's what he lays out next. Verse 18, that whoever believes in him is not condemned, right? He told Nicodemus, Jesus did, that no one can tell from where the spirit would come or where it's going. But when they when the spirit does come like the wind, you would recognize it. And it is the Spirit of God who opens the eyes of sinners to see Jesus and believe. So whoever it is that believes in Him, the Spirit is the one who comes and opens their eyes. Jesus is not overstepping His boundaries here. He's not sitting here and telling Nicodemus, your eyes are going to be open, that guy's, that guy's, that guy's. He's just speaking generally. Whoever's eyes are open, this is up to the work of the Spirit. But those who believe, He says, are not condemned meaning they're not going to be held in shame. They're not going to be held in their guilt. They're not going to be held in their sin, if you will. Jesus has the authority to just bring the hammer in this moment, but He doesn't. God's love is not an agent of condemnation. That's not what He comes to do. The the agent of condemnation is the world. Jesus says, I don't have to come here to condemn you. The world condemns you. Whoever does not believe is condemned already, is what Jesus says. The very existence of a sinner, the very existence of a sinner without Jesus is the very existence of being condemned already. We are without God. We are without hope. We are full of sin, we are full of lie, we are full of envy, we are full of murder, we are full of idolatry, adultery. And so whoever does not believe is already condemned. So Jesus doesn't need to come down and just like pound on the condemnation sandwich, right? And just add layers to it. No, you're already condemned. I don't need to do anything about that. So whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so, not believing in the Son of God, that's what compounds condemnation. Church, God did not send Jesus to condemn you. Right? Sometimes, one of the biggest struggles of being a pastor is having to constantly remind folks over and over, and even myself, but remind folks over and over, that God has removed all of your condemnation. All of your shame. All of your guilt. And He's done it through His Son, Jesus, on the cross. We are so quick to forget. And we are so quick to self-condemn. But God saying, I didn't come to condemn you. But yet we are quick to go, but God, I feel like you're condemning me. (laughs) 
And God is saying no. He reminds us elsewhere in Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Galatians 5.1 says, For it is freedom that Christ has set us free. God is not saying you need to do a certain number of things and not then I'll remove condemnation. It is believe in my son Jesus and condemnation is removed. Sin, shame, guilt, your perversions, your anger, everything that is sinful about you, everything that makes you insecure has been put upon Jesus on the cross. And all of it has died with Him. And He has redeemed it all by resurrecting from the grave. And so you are redeemed. You no longer carry that baggage with you, if you will. Or that identity, shall I say. Do you believe in the name of the only Son of God? Do you believe He died for your sins? That He rose from the grave? That He sits at the right hand of the Father? That He's coming back for you? Then you must Believe that all of your sins, every single one of them, in the past, in the present, the sins to come, have been rightly dealt with in the cross of Christ. And if you're feeling condemned, understand that is different than conviction. Conviction leads to encouragement and freedom and joy. Condemnation leads to enslavement, self-pity, self-loathing. If you're feeling condemned or hearing the voices of condemnation, understand that is not the voice of God, but that is the voice of the accuser. And so church, turn away from the accuser and run hard and fast to the Word of God and hear what it is He has to say. He's saying, I didn't send my Son to condemn you. But you are free. Free, my Son. And look, some of us in the church, both Redeemer and beyond. I mean, some of us carry the, the capital D around. We're, we're the divorce person, right? And we've done horrible in the church, like recognizing, oh, that's the divorce person. It's almost like, Ugh. right? The capital D, or maybe the person who has a, a criminal record or, or is a registered offender of some sort. And we're like, ugh. Like we, we kind of are standoffish because... We can see their sin. But you have to understand that though you may carry that sort of reminder in the kingdom of God, those have been placed on the cross of Christ and they no longer define who you are. You are no longer condemned, but you are born again, a child of the living God, the world may throw these labels on you. The world may press you down. The world may try to remind you of your faults and of your sinful past and of all your mistakes. But you have to understand, you have to run to the Word of God. What does God say about you? Because that's what matters. His morals are right. His love is pure. His love is right. His justice is spot on. And so as a gentle and hopeful reminder, I hope you are encouraged. God did not send His Son to condemn you, but to save you from your condemnation. 
So God removes condemnation for those who believe in the Son of God, but for those who don't, condemnation is compounded because they rejected the Son. But even for those who believe, they have only the grace of God to thank for the removal of condemnation because it is God who works on their behalf. And last, verses 19 through 21, the love of God changes sinners to look like Jesus. And this is the judgment, he says in verse 19. That is the verdict, the basis of rendering a judgment. What Jesus is about to say are grounds for judgment. This is why Jesus is saying, look, I don't have to come down here and condemn you because watch, here's the judgment. It's kind of like Jesus is the prosecuting attorney with the opening statements in the courtroom. And here's what he says. Here's why I don't have to condemn you. Because the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is saying, I'm here. The light is here. You constantly reject it. The world rejects it. You stand condemned already. What more do you need me to say about this? This is what you are going to be carrying into the courtroom of God. So everything Jesus says shows that God has acted in love. He's acted in light. And the world is the one who has acted in evil ways, hating light. The world is the one who has sinned. God has not sinned. God has been acting in love. So when Jesus will pound the gavel on judgment day, there's not going to be this long, drawn out case where a bunch of witnesses are taking the stand and there's a lot of evidence and trying to plead the case of sinners. There's not going to be any long deliberation of a grand jury trying to figure out whether or not people should be innocent or guilty of their charges. It's going to be a cut and dry case. Do you believe in Jesus or not? Have you rejected the light or have you accepted it? Are you born again or are you not? And for those of us who are not condemned and live in the salvation given by Jesus, our lives or their lives look different than the world. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen. It kind of seems if you read this very in this order, it seems like Jesus might be saying, well, if you do truth, that's what makes you come to light. And, but that's not the case. What Jesus is doing is he's speaking plainly in terms, not in terms of here's the order of salvation, but in terms of the evidences of salvation. Here's what the world looks like, and here's what the believers in Jesus look like. The person who believes in Jesus has been Changed from darkness to light, from outside the kingdom to inside the kingdom, from death to life to being born again. They no longer uphold lies, but they uphold truth. They no longer live in the dark, but they now live in the light. They no longer sin in hiding, but live for God in the open. Everything they do is clearly seen. This person no longer does things in their own power, by their own strength. For their own good. But they do it. That his works have been carried out in God. So the condemned person carries out their evil deeds. Whereas the one who is not condemned carries out their deeds 
in righteousness because their deeds are done through God. So those who have been born again, those who are now alive, those who are in the light, now live in such a different, radically different way that they are changed, that everything they do is done in God. Their righteousness is found in God, or as Paul says, in Christ. That's what distinguishes us from the world. And so the sinner is awakened to life, filled with the Spirit, with the life of Jesus. And so if you believe in Jesus, then your life ought to be changed and it should not be the same. Cannot be the same. What is different about you as a born-again believer versus the world? Can you even see a distinction between you and the world? Or do you look a lot like the world? Or does the world look a lot like you? When you go to work or go to school or wherever it is you go, can the lost world around you see Christ in you, the hope of glory? Do they recognize it? Do they hear it coming from your lips? Do they see that you love scandalously? That you'll love the unlovable? And these are the evidences of your life in Christ. You love truth. You love the light. You are seen because of the righteous work of Christ. You love obeying God. You love His Word. You treasure Him. In other words, you look like Jesus. Can people see that you look like Jesus? And the way you are, this is what it means to be born again. For those who may be living in darkness, here is the verdict. Guilty. This is the verdict for you. Condemned. Eternally condemned. Your your very life is a living, breathing, guilty verdict. Jesus does not have to come down and condemn you because you do it on your own. So there may be some in this room who are under the false belief that Jesus will surely acknowledge the good that you do and he wouldn't send you to hell for being a good person, right? But I want you to pay attention to what God's word is telling you this morning. You and I, without Christ, we stand condemned, not because God is mean, but because your good deeds are not actually good deeds, but they are evil. They're sinful. You're so blinded by darkness, kind of like Nicodemus, so blinded by darkness that you think your deeds are good enough to please God, that somehow you can win God over with what it is you're going to do. But I'm going to tell you plainly, they're not good. And so I want to call you to confession and repentance this morning. To deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow Him. So the love of God does not come to condemn, but to give hope and opportunity to turn from the darkness and to come into His wonderful light. And so you and I, without Jesus, are guilty and stand no chance, but thanks be to God that He sent His only Son to save the world from their sins. Jim Woods, Craig's father, he seems to be a good father. He really does. If, there, if there's a chance he hears this sermon, which I hope he does, I, I pray that he's encouraged. 
I really do. The love that he has for his son surpasses all the judgment, all the criticism, all the loss that he will ultimately receive for the rest of his life. I mean, the chances are good that all the appeals are going to be rejected and he's going to watch his son die of lethal injection. But that does not stop him from loving his son, Craig. Nor does it stop him from helping the Owens family. And this is the point of this story. It is only the father's love towards his son that makes the relationship work. Craig can't do anything. He can't go anywhere. He can't go to the doorstep of his father and plead and beg for love and mercy and forgiveness. The father has to come to him. And that's how that relationship is going. Otherwise, if his father never would come to him, Craig would just be another body in a jail cell, left alone, dead to the world, honestly, without hope. And so I think this is where we stand today. We say, I am not worthy. I am unlovable. But the father says, son, my love has moved towards you. You cannot push me away. We say, I'm wretched. I'm so full of shame. But the father says, son, I have sent Jesus to die for you. I have removed your shame and given you his righteousness. You are lovely, my son. We say, father, I... Okay, I'm seeing things new. I can see your love and I need your help to live for you. The father says, son, I am changing your heart and giving you a deep passion for my truth, for my light and for my son, Jesus. The father is with us. He's never leaving us. He's never forsaking us. He's always moving towards us. This is the hope we have for God so loved the world. This is the scandalous love of God. And so may we be a people who always praise God for his relentless pursuit of us by his love. A people who are always fighting to live in the freedom that Christ has given us through his death and resurrection. And that we be a people who live in the light on his truth and looking more and more like Jesus until he should return.